What's going on, guys? Welcome back to The Control Room. I'm your host, Israel Johannes. Now, this has been a busy week for the NBA. The trade deadline has come and gone. So what we're going to do is take a look at all of the trade deadline deals and then see what those trades mean for the Mavericks, the Pelicans, and the Thunder. And we'll also take a look at how each of those teams have played throughout week 16. The Mavs went on a three-game win streak on their East road trip. The Pelicans beat the Clippers to cap a four-game win streak but they lost to the Lakers in historic fashion. So we'll break down what those numbers were and what they all mean. And then the Thunder lost to the Jazz, and they had a situation where a piece of their weakness was exposed to the point where the Dallas Mavericks exploited them in their very next game. We'll break down all of that coming up. First, let's look at these trade deadline deals. Starting off with February 7th, which was the day before the Boston Celtics landed Xavier Tillman from the Memphis Grizzlies. The Grizzlies received Lamar Stevens and two second round picks, 2027 second round pick from the Hawks, 2030 second round pick from the Mavs. Xavier Tillman is going through a knee injury. And so as of right now, he's unavailable and I don't believe there's a timetable for his return. So this is assuming that he'll eventually be healthy for the playoffs. He can provide some added front court depth and some rebounding presence, defensive presence, and he's also he can also score inside. Then also on February 7th, the Timberwolves added guard Monty Morris from the Pistons. The Pistons got Troy Brown Jr., Shake Milton, and a 2030 second-round pick. Then February 8th, everything just broke loose. It started off with the Detroit Pistons acquiring Fontecchio from the Utah Jazz. So Simone Fontecchio went to the Pistons, the Jazz got Kevin Knox and a future second-round pick, as well as the rights to Gabriel Procida. Then the Indiana Pacers acquired Corey Joseph from the Golden State Warriors, as well as a 2025 second-round pick via Charlotte. And cash considerations, the Warriors got a 2024 second-round pick. Then the Philadelphia 76ers traded Daniel House Jr. to the Pistons, along with a 2024 second-round pick and cash considerations, while the, while the Sixers got a 2028 second-round pick. Then the Toronto Raptors acquired Kelly Olynyk from the Utah Jazz. So the Raptors got Kelly Olynyk and Ochai Agbaji, the product out of Kansas, and the Jazz got Otto Porter Jr., Kyra Lewis Jr., and the 2024 first-round pick from Toronto. Then the Milwaukee Bucks traded Robin Lopez, only one of the Lopez, to the Sacramento Kings, as well as cash considerations, and the Bucks received draft rights to Dimitrios Agravanis. Then a Mavs trade, the Mavs acquired big man Daniel Gafford from the Washington Wizards. This, what came before this was an attempt at Kyle Kuzma, but the price was, was too high, and so they... They pivoted, and one of the trades that the Mavs went for was the big man from Washington. So the Mavs got Daniel Gafford, and the Wizards got Rashawn Holmes and a 2024 first-round pick from the Mavs, but it came from the Thunder, and we'll talk about how that all came into play. But first, the Portland Trailblazers added Banton from the Celtics. The Celtics got a protected second-round pick. The Blazers got Delano Banton and cash considerations. Then the Celtics added Jaden Springer from the Sixers, and the Sixers got a 2024 second-round pick from Boston. 
Now, this is where the Mavs and the Thunder got those picks back in order so that the Mavs could get Gafford. The Mavericks got a 2024 first-round pick from Oklahoma City, and Oklahoma City received a 2028 first-round pick swap. So that is how the Mavs were able to land an asset that Washington asked for in order to acquire Gafford in the first place. Now, one of the bigger trades that we had heard about was Patrick Beverly being sent from Philadelphia to Milwaukee. So Patrick Beverly went to the Milwaukee Bucks. In return, the 76ers got Cameron Payne and a 2027 second-round pick. Then the Brooklyn Nets got Dennis Schroeder from Toronto along with Thaddeus Young. In return, the Raptors got Spencer Dinwiddie. Now, Spencer Dinwiddie has already been bought out, and as of now, he is signing with the Los Angeles Lakers, so he will not make a return to Dallas, unfortunately. But L.A. is where he's from, so good to see him go where he wants to go on his own terms. The New York Knicks, this is the biggest trade of the day. The Knicks got Alec Burks and Boyan Bogdanovich from Detroit, while the Pistons got Evan Fournier, Malachi Flynn, who they got, who the Knicks got from Toronto, Quentin Grimes, Ryan Archidecono, two future second-round picks, and cash considerations. And this trade put New York in heights we have not seen since the Carmelo days, since Amari Stoudemire. Well, before Amari Stoudemire, let me get all the way back to Patrick Ewing back in the 90s when those teams went to the finals. So this, this next team, we'll get into who won the trade, but this might be a spoiler alert. All right, now the Oklahoma City Thunder made a trade. They added Gordon Hayward from Charlotte, and in return, Charlotte got Vasilya Micic, Trey Mann, Davis Bertans, a 2024 second-round pick from Houston, and a 2025 second-round pick from the Sixers. And this, this was not a four-team trade. OKC just has a bank of picks. I think they had 15 picks that they could select from, and it, it was they, they just have a massive amount. So they were like, here, take some picks. We'll take one of your guys. All right, now the Phoenix Suns were involved in a three-team trade between Phoenix, Memphis, and Brooklyn. So the Suns got Royce O'Neal from the Nets, and they also got David Roddy from the Grizzlies. The Grizzlies got a 2026, uh, 2026 first-round pick swap via Phoenix, Chimezie Metu from Phoenix, and Utah Watanabe from Phoenix. And the Nets got Kita Bates Diop from Phoenix, Jordan Goodwin from Phoenix, the draft rights to Vanya Marinkovic from Memphis, and then three future second-round picks from the Suns. So more depth for Phoenix with Royce O'Neal and David Roddy, guys that had been in the rotation on their on their respective teams, and they can fortify the Suns whenever you have Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, and Bradley Beal not on the floor. Now, obviously, there's no way that Frank Vogel would leave all three of those on the bench unless it was a blowout. But if the Suns have more depth, then they can be more formidable as we get closer to the playoffs. The Sixers dealt for Buddy Heald from Indiana. So the Sixers got Buddy Heald. The Pacers got Furkan Korkmaz, Doug McDermott, 
This is interesting. He got them from the Spurs. So this is a three-team trade. A 2024 second-round pick via the Raptors, 2029 second-round pick via the Blazers, and then cash considerations via the Sixers. The Spurs got Marcus Morris Sr. and a 2029 second-round pick via the LA Clippers, as well as cash considerations. Then, the last trade to report, according to this trade tracker, the Mavs got P.J. Washington from the Charlotte Hornets. So the Mavs got a 2024 second-round pick and a 2028 second-round pick along with P.J. Washington, a couple more trade assets that they can, they can have. And then the Charlotte Hornets got Grant Williams, Seth Curry, which meant the Mavs traded him away, let him go, for the third straight time, it's neither here nor there, and a 2027 second, not second, a 2027 first round pick. So a little bit of a flip. Now, where did the Mavs get those? What do those Mavs do with the 2024, 2028 second round pick? Because if we look at what we got for Actually, no, that's not true. Uh, those two those two picks, those second-round picks, they're being held by the Mavs. That was not used in the Gafford trade. So the Mavs will have those two second-round picks along with P.J. Washington, and then as of Saturday, the Mavs were able to debut Washington and Gafford. We'll get into briefly that game and how well that they played. So who won the trade deadline on the east side? The east went to the New York Knicks. Obviously, those those two key assets in Bogdanovich and Burks are going to elevate New York once they're fully healthy to top two, three in the in the Eastern Conference and can make them a potential play for the NBA Finals, depending on how the matchups all play out. Boston is still the favorite to get out of the East, but with the way New York is playing, especially Jalen Brunson playing at an all-star level, he's already been selected but close to MVP levels, I would say, that Jalen Brunson's playing. It's just that the, some of those guys are really hurt right now. They've been missing out on Mitchell Robinson. Julius Randle's out with a separated shoulder. Jalen Brunson has been dealing with an ankle. So not everyone's healthy, but once they're all whole, the Knicks are going to be a, te- oh, a tough team to beat, as well as OJ Ananobi, who had elbow surgery to clean up a loose bone fragment. So he'll be out for about three weeks before he gets reevaluated. But once he's back on the floor, oh, this, this team is going to be something else. So watch out for the orange and blue. On the west side, the Dallas Mavericks are considered to be the winners of the trade deadline. I agree with that sentiment. Now, let's see what these trades did for the Mavericks. Why do I think the Mavs won this trade, uh, this trade deadline, I should say? PJ Washington and Daniel Gafford strengthen the Mavs front court, which is one of which is probably the biggest issue I raised going into the trade deadline, especially with their deficiencies from last season where they drafted Derek Lively to fix some of their interior defense and their rebounding. So Daniel Gafford this season has career highs in minutes, points, rebounds, assists, field goals made, field goals attempted, free throws made, free throws attempted, free throw percentage, steals per game, blocks per game. He has a 14.3% rebounding percentage, which was 75th in the NBA going into 
Friday, Saturday. Derek Lively II has a 14.9% rebounding percentage and is 64th in the NBA, just for context. So they're not, they're not that far apart, which means that having someone on Derek Lively's level means that there won't be a drop-off when Lively's either hurt or just sitting on the bench. P.J. Washington has numbers that aren't great across the board this season when you look at his career numbers. The, the real question is, can, B, can P.J. be more effective with less volume with Luka than how he was with Charlotte? And if anything, that game against the Thunder proved that answer is yes. Now, stats are a reflection of results. How do... How players get those stats are determined by their play on the floor. Off-ball cutting, pick and pop, pick and roll. It, some, so many different scenarios can happen to lead to a certain statistic. It's just a matter of how the team implements every single player and their skill sets to be the most efficient that they can be on the floor. The Mavs have the most... Well, they don't... They don't have the most starting lineups in the NBA. I'm gonna I misspoke in the last episode about how many lineups that the Mavs had used because for a while they had led the league. But considering all of the injuries that Memphis has dealt with, and now with all of these, with all this movement going on on their roster, Memphis has 31 starting lineups so far this year, which is first. Dallas has 29, so they are in second. Miami with 27, and then. Entering Saturday, Charlotte, Detroit, and Portland each had 25, and then two of these teams are now up at 26 um, going into Sunday. The, the biggest worry for me for the Mavs, though, is that they have very little draft capital for the rest of the decade. Now, I talked about those two second-round picks that they got in the P.J. Washington trade, but you're going to be forced to have to move players around if you want to make any kind of movement as they did this time, because you can't just get them off picks alone. And if this doesn't work, and then if Luca and Kyrie leave for nothing like Jalen Brunson did, it can set the Mavs back for anywhere from 12 to 15 years. If they have no draft capital, if they, if they have draft capital and they hit, it's a different story, but the Mavs might be a lottery team if we get to the point of devastation where we have no superstars and we got nothing back for them. So basically this has to work there. There's no going back. There's no, there's the point of no return with these guys. For the Pelicans, if you, rem if you remember me reading off this list, they were nowhere to be found. They stood pat. So outside of trading away Kyra Lewis Jr. to Toronto earlier in the season, the Pelicans didn't make a move. They attempted to trade for DeJounte Murray, according to Chris Haynes of Turner Sports, but talks fell through in the last 24 hours leading up to the trade deadline. Why is that? We're not exactly sure, but if they asked for someone like a Herbert Jones or a Trey Murphy III, that would be a difficult move to make, even for DeJounte Murray, who's who doesn't have much of a contract left. But the Pelicans have most of what they need. To me, what they were missing was that point guard. And the reason why is because the way that this offense has been going is that Zion, CJ, Brandon Ingram, they have all facilitated the offense 
The offense has run through them. It can run through any one of those guys. But Zion must continue to take over games and not be passive. Doesn't mean that he can't generate assists. Those are two different things, right? So, for example, when they played the Clippers, he passed up a low post opportunity against Kawhi Leonard and immediately gave the ball up. And the way he did it, he just kind of swung it, swung it to his right while looking straight at Kawhi Leonard, didn't even post him up. In that situation, you would hope for Zion to sit on the block, receive the ball, and just pound his strength into whoever's defending him, no matter who it is, and then get to the basket. In order to do that, you have to be conditioned to do it all game long. And what he's normally done is he's been more of a facilitator in the first three quarters and then taken off in the fourth. From that Clippers game going into the Lakers game, however, he the Lakers game, he seemed aggressive until he just couldn't go anymore. So we'll talk about what happened with that Pelicans-Lakers game, of course, in the next segment. And then the Gordon Hayward trade for the Thunder, it's not a bad trade. It, it provides So Gordon Hayward provides veteran presence and... All around an all-around bench player in the fold. We talked about him briefly in the Thunder Live pregame when we were when we were doing the Thunder Mavs game. So the experience that he brings to the table, he's played in seven different playoff series across four appearances in the playoffs. He's got he's got the most experience that you can ask for. For a guy that's going to come off the bench, he can help calm down the younger guys. Shea has already been in playoff series before with the Clippers. But what is still missing, right? Because although Hayward's a forward, right, he's not addressing the most important issues for the Thunder. So by not going after bigs like Andre Drummond or uh, Nikola Vucevic, right? Because Vucevic is not only a big, he's a big that can shoot. OKC is essentially surrendering their ability to crash the glass. They have to make up for their deficiencies on the glass through other categories, like points in the paint, fast break points, points off turnovers, those miscellaneous categories that I normally talk about with the Mavericks. The Thunder really have to focus on those as well. On the positive side, the offense won't be... This is what Zach Lowe was saying on the the low post the offense won't be disrupted via the personnel with SGA leading the charge. The not having Drummond, let's say, because Drummond is not a shooter, means that they can play five out and they can still be as effective. Although when you're coming up from, when you're running an offensive set with a center in the paint, there are other options available to you as well. You can the There's a pick and roll game with Chet, of course. But now you're you're able to have Chet on the outside and then have a true center come up and, and run the pick and roll. And there are just other options that you can use that you can kind of mix up where defenses will say, okay, we need to guard SGA a certain way. You're not going to be able to do that all game long when you have different offensive possibilities, right? But mainly the the presence of a big man is because of their inability to rebound their inefficiencies in the second chance category. But also their paint defense has been struggling this week because 
against Utah and against Dallas, they've now given up two straight games of 60 or more points in the paint. And that is not a recipe for success. So along with that issue for the Thunder, in the next segment, we're going to talk about Week 16, the Mavs, the Pels, and the Thunder. That's coming up next. Don't go away. We're going to take a look at the week 16 results so far. Let's start off with the Mavs three game road trip. They won three straight games against Philadelphia, Brooklyn, and New York. Their first three game win streak since January 3rd to the 7th, which is their fourth overall three game win streak of the season. And their second three game win streak on the road this season. Philadelphia, however, missed Joel Embiid. New York didn't have Jalen Brunson, Julius Randle, OJ Ananobi, so take this with a grain of salt, but a win is a win on the schedule. The Mavs three games across that road trip, I'm going to give you their rankings as well from February 5th to the 9th, along with their efficiency ratings. So they had a 122.9 offensive rating, seventh in the the NBA, 108.6 defensive rating, fifth in the NBA, and a 14.4 net rating, which was fourth in the NBA. So top 10 offense, top 10 defense, Top 10 net have been playing like one of the best teams in the NBA across that week. One of the biggest issues I've brought up with the Mavs in the last season, across the last two seasons since covering the team, has been their rebounding. They were out-rebounded 51-44 to Philadelphia, out-rebounded Brooklyn 45-43, and then they were out-rebounded 46-40 to New York. So... Let's look at that Brooklyn game where they actually out-rebounded Brooklyn by two. They have a 14-6 and record this season when matching or out-rebounding their opponents entering Saturday because against the Thunder on Saturday, they out-rebounded Oklahoma City. So that was their 15th win. But the 14-6 and record gave them a 70% win percentage and that is only 18th in the NBA. So other teams have done better when out-rebounding opponents but you would rather have a winning record than not in this situation. Now, the New York game where they were out-rebounded 46-40, the Mavs won these games anyway. So they the Mavs won their last two games and out-rebounded after losing their previous four. And they now have a 15-17 and 17 record this season when out-rebounded, which is sixth best in the NBA. That had been a strength of the Mavs last season early on, but then eventually it started to teeter into the loss category. But the closer you can stay to 500 whenever you get out-rebounded, the better off your overall record is going to be. Now, the Mavs are also 4-0 against the Knicks in the last two seasons, so they've swept them twice, after losing five of the previous six games. Great turnaround against the Orange and Blue. And then on top of all that, the Mavs assist to turnover ratio. I thought this was significant. They had a 2.77 assist to turnover ratio, which was fourth in the NBA. Committed 21 turnovers to Milwaukee last Saturday. All right. So 22 assists to 21 turnovers was a 1.05 assist to turnover ratio. The 2.77 assist to turnover ratio that 
put them at fourth in the NBA was across those three games between Philly, Brooklyn, and New York. So it's not just a one-game sample. It's over the stretch of a week. So I, I only expect that trend to continue because the Mavs are really good with taking care of the ball, and they have a lot of assists simply because of Luka Doncic. Speaking of Luka Doncic, ESPN did run this stat a few times. He is the third player in NBA history with 375-plus points, 100-plus rebounds, and 100-plus assists in a 10-game stretch and passed James Harden for second-most games all-time with 30-plus points and 15-plus assists on January 29th versus Orlando. Now, we talked about that game in the previous episode, but that was not a note that I had put up. Now, that didn't come from ESPN. We had actually been tracking this stat for the last few years. So it, it had just been something that we continue to look at. So now Luca has 14 career games with 30 points and 15 assists. James Harden is right behind him with 13. And the only one ahead of Luka Doncic is Magic Johnson with 18. Then, significant note for Kyrie Irving, a game-high 36 points in his return to Brooklyn. Played really well. Though, If you if you had heard Luka Doncic's interview with J.J. Redick already, that, that alley-oop dunk from Luka to Josh Green to Kyrie Irving was actually a bad pass, and Kyrie made it look like a sick dunk. So, all-around great game if you want to look at some good highlights from from Kai. It's a great game to watch. Another significant note, Derek Lively II missed his 17th game Saturday versus OKC. He had he was not he had to get a procedure on his nose and wasn't able to make it to Philly or Brooklyn in time and then he wasn't available for the New York game or the OKC game. And the reason why this is important is because if he misses another game this season, he will not be eligible for awards such as Rookie of the Year or the NBA All-Rookie Team and, and all that stuff. So end-of-season awards will be off the table if he misses another game. He has to be back by the next game for the Mavs. Now let's transition to the Pelicans because they had a dominant win against the Clippers who briefly were atop the Western Conference standings. It was the Pelicans' fifth wire-to-wire win this season, which was tied the fifth, tied for the fifth most in the NBA entering Saturday. And then in the miscellaneous categories, New Orleans just beat the brakes off the Clippers. All right, so in the paint, they outscored the Clippers 54-38. to And in second-chance points, they outscored the Clippers 12-2. to On the fast break, they outscored the Clippers 20-10. to and then in points off turnovers, the Pelicans outscored the Clippers 26 to 15. And those 26 points off turnovers came off of 19 Clippers turnovers. That's a lot of turnovers. All right. And then the Pelicans also had 30 assists. They are 14 and three this season in games with 30 or more assists. Now, again, that's entering Saturday. They also had some balanced scoring, six double-digit scores versus the Clippers, 14-6 and six this season with six-plus double-digit scores entering Saturday. Um, however, before we even got to Saturday, they had a little hiccup in the Crypto.com arena. Not in the first game, but in the second one, because the Lakers had an absurd shooting night. And I'm, part of it looked like the Pelicans 
could do nothing more. Another part of it just looked like they let the Lakers do whatever they want. So a historic loss on epic, on epic proportions. I'm going to break down the significance of everything right now. All right. So the Pelicans allowed 51 points in the second quarter. That's the most in any quarter by the Lakers this season ties the most in any quarter in Lakers franchise history since 1951 to 52. It's the second most points allowed in any quarter in Pelicans franchise history and the most allowed in any second quarter in franchise history. The Pelicans second quarter three point defense entering this game was 30.5%, which was first in the NBA. The Lakers in the second quarter of this game shot nine of 13, which is 69.2% from three. That's the third highest three-point field goal percentage allowed in any quarter by the Pelicans this season and the highest in any second quarter this season because the next highest was only 60%. So it was almost a 10, per, 10 point percent, a 10 percentage point jump from what the Lakers did, from what they previously allowed to what the Lakers did. Because of this game, the Pelicans three-point defense going into their game against Portland was now 31.5%. So their three-point defense went up an, an entire percentage point. Although they are still first in the NBA in that category. Now, they allowed 87 points in the first half. What? Yeah, so the Lakers' 87 points is the second most in a first half in franchise history. The Pelicans also allowed five, count them, five 20-point scores. For New Orleans, it was the first time in franchise history that they allowed five 20-point scores. For the Lakers, it was their fourth time in franchise history with five 20-point scores. They are now 4-0 in those games. The previous three times came against the Portland Trailblazers. The last instance for the Lakers with five 20-point scores, was November 4th, 1984. LeBron hadn't been born yet. Let me repeat that. LeBron James had not been born yet the last time the Lakers had five 20-point scores in a single game. NBA teams are 51-7 and seven when five players score 20 or more. The last two instances have come within one week, because remember, the Thunder did it in double overtime against the Raptors. The last five instances have come since January of 2023. But there have been only seven instances since 1993. None of this makes sense. Now, obviously, the way basketball has been played has changed over the course of the decades. But there were more instances in the 80s than there were in the 90s. And then after 1993, the first instance was 2004. And then we didn't really see it happen again until the late 2010s. So it's, it's now starting to show itself again. We're allowing more games with five 20-point scores. And uh, it's getting a little absurd. Especially when you see two in a week. That's a lot. All right, now Zion Williamson in this game had 30 points. But he didn't score again after the 8.52-minute mark in the fourth quarter. 
his aggressiveness in the first three quarters was not sustained throughout the rest of the game. And even though, despite everything that the Pelicans went through with all of these historic stats, it was still within three. It was, there was one point where it was 99 to 96 in favor of the Lakers. So the Pelicans still could have won this game, but it just ran out of gas. And it seemed like Zion also ran out of gas. So although he had a, a genuinely good scoring night, it was just that he has to bring it all game long. He has to be able to bring it all game long and then take what the defense gives him rather than restricting himself so that he can be good for the fourth quarter. Because there are some games where he, especially this one, where if he's not aggressive the whole game, the Pelicans almost have no shot. Now, as a team, they allowed 68 paint points and 21 points off turnovers. These are two categories that they can clean up so, they, so that they don't have this issue again. They're 0-3 this season when allowing 60-plus paint points and 20-plus points off turnovers in the same game. They're 1-9 this season when allowing more than 50 paint points in a game, as well as 15-plus points off turnovers in the same game. So, clearly, take care of those two categories. Shore up your three-point defense in the second quarter, across the whole game, too. Make sure Zion can play the whole game aggressively. And you have a recipe for success. And they seem to turn it around with the way that they played defense against the Portland Trailblazers because that was a low-scoring game. But we will talk about games like that throughout the, the end of the first big portion of the NBA season. Those last few games before the All-Star break will break down in the next episode. But let's move on to the Oklahoma City Thunder, who fell to the music of the Jazz. OKC lost 124-117 to in Utah, J-Dub returned from his ankle injury. And then Chet, Chet Holmgren, had four blocks yet again. His 13th game this season with four-plus blocks, and he is still tied fourth in the NBA with Anthony Davis in terms of most games this season with four or more blocks. He's only behind Victor Wimbanyama in first, Walker Kessler in second, and Brooke Lopez in third. The biggest areas to clean up from this game going into the Dallas game would be their two-point field goal percentage. They shot 24 of 53, which is only 45.3%. Their free throw percentage was not great either. They shot 12 of 18, and they've been struggling a little bit as of late because they were one of the best free throw shooting teams in the league entering this month, and they, they just hadn't been as good as they were. So that's 66.7%. In the paint, they were outscored 60 to 36. And then on second chance points, they were outscored 19 to 9. So clearly, fix those issues and then you'll be good against Dallas. And on top of that, even though it was a big test against Dallas with new pieces coming in with the trade deadline and all that, there was going to be no Derek Live of the second. However, that's not what happened. A two-point field goal percentage against Dallas. I have the box score right in front of me. They shot 21 of 51, 41.2%. They cleaned up their free throw, their free throw shooting, but they, they got waxed in bench points, points in the paint, 
Fast break points was a 33 to two advantage for the Mavericks. The 66 points in the paint that Dallas had was a season high. I mean, there's so much to talk about from that game alone, what it means for the Maverick for the Mavericks and the Thunder. That is one of the things that we will talk about in the next episode when we recap everything up until this point through going into the All-Star break. And the reason why I really want to touch that game next week is because it's also going to show what the Mavs and the Pelicans and the Thunder, overall those three teams, but especially those two teams among this game, what they need to do for the rest of the season as they reach the playoffs. Because if these don't get fixed, teams will expose them, and it's not going to be a fun time. All right, now for the last segment, we're going to talk about some upcoming topics, which I've been teasing all day, but also take a look at some upcoming matchups as well and get a get a little bit of a pick on who I think will win the Super Bowl. That's coming up next. In the next episode, we're going to look at all three teams and review their seasons up through the all-star break. And then this, the episode after we'll definitely take a look at what those teams need to do for their post all-star break stretch. Those are going to be two big topics, especially because certain teams can make a playoff push after the all-star break going into the all-star break can be kind of a, slow time where the teams are really just trying to get to the break. I mean, even us broadcasters are just trying to get to the break at this point. All three of these teams have playoff aspirations. They have championship aspirations now. So we will, we will take a look at where they are. And and then in the episode after, take a look at where they're, where they should go. All that good stuff is coming up. So much to look forward to. Now, this is a big day. I'm recording this episode on the morning of Super Bowl Sunday. So I'd be remiss if I didn't put down a prediction. I actually think the Chiefs will beat the 49ers in this game, and the final score would be 34-30. to Similar to last year, you had two great defenses go up against each other, and they were hopeless against the pass and the run. Really, you had two mobile quarterbacks, great running games, there, where you thought there would be defense, it wasn't there. I feel like this will be more of the same, especially because you have Christian McCaffrey on the 49ers side, Isaiah Pacheco on the Chiefs side, and with the way Patrick Mahomes and Brock Purdy have been playing, there's going to be some offense there. But let's not act like there won't be offense. But that is, I, I think, given how the Chiefs got here, right? that's been a point of contention, Two games on the road, Patrick Mahomes still beating expectations, surprising us when we thought he possibly couldn't. It it wouldn't be smart to bet against the Chiefs in this situation. And championship experience is obviously going to play a part. He's already won two Super Bowls. I just think that the Chiefs will execute just a little bit more 
right? That last, that one more play cliche that athletes like to use. I think the Chiefs will have that. And somehow, because of the way the score is structured, it would be on the Chiefs' defense. Even though I did say that the offenses will score, it'll be on the Chiefs' defense to stop the 49ers on the last drive. And in this game at 34-30 in Vegas. So that's just my pick. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. If I'm right, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to gloat, but I'm going to look for a great game regardless. So enjoy your Super Bowl Sunday. Now let's get into the tip-offs for the national broadcasts and the local broadcasts. There are still a few games to look at. Across national TV on Tuesday, February 13th, the Oklahoma City Thunder will play the Orlando Magic at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Central on TNT, followed by the Sacramento Kings and the Phoenix Suns at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on TNT. Then Wednesday, February 14th, Valentine's Day, we got the Chicago Bulls and the Cleveland Cavaliers at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Central on ESPN, followed by the Clippers and the Warriors at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on ESPN. Warriors just came off a Steph Curry game winner against the Suns. Magnificent game. So look for something great with these two with these two teams. Then Thursday, February 15th, the Bucks and the Grizzlies will play at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 7.30 p.m. Central on TNT. And that will be one of only three games left on the NBA slate for that day. Now, across local television... There are just two days to look at. Monday, February 12th, the Pelicans will play the Grizzlies at 8, 7 Central on Valley Sports New Orleans and Valley Sports Southeast. And then the Wizards will play the Mavs at 8, 30, 7, 30 Central on Monument and B Valley Sports Southwest. Then on Wednesday, February 14th, the Washington Wizards will play the New Orleans Pelicans at 8, 7 Central on Monument and Valley Sports New Orleans. And then the Spurs will play the Mavericks at 8.30, 7.30 Central on Bally Sports Southwest, both in San Antonio and in Dallas. And this will most likely be the first time we get to see Victor Wembanyama in Dallas because the last time he was there, he tripped on a ball boy and hurt his ankle and he didn't play. And that was unfortunate for everyone who bought a ticket. So hopefully this time around, it'll be a little bit different. All right, so that is it for the upcoming NBA schedules. Enjoy your Super Bowl Sunday. Thank you guys for continuing to watch and listen to this uh, to these episodes every single week. And then let's uh, let's get into this All Star break, happy and healthy. All right, that does it for me. This has been the Control Room. I am your host, Israel Johannes, signing off.